This athletic podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favorite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all the games. The Bet365 Bet Builder will allow you to make personalized bets via the app, so you can go on and bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favorite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and the Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello listener, I'm Carl Anker and welcome to Talk of the Devils, the Manchester United podcast from The Athletic. Coming up this week, we're assessing United's performance in their 2-2 draw with Southampton last night. As ever, I'm joined by our usual writers here at The Athletic, Mr. Laurie Whitwell and Mr. Andy Mitten. Gentlemen, I'm going to go to you, Laurie. How are you feeling off that 2-2 draw? Okay, yeah, I mean, I think Southampton, most people could predict, were going to be quite a difficult opponent for United, um, although their league position doesn't necessarily show it. Um, you know they're clearly very adept at high pressing. Manchester City um, found that to their cost recently, so I think everyone knew that it was going to be a difficult um, encounter. I suppose just the way the match went, being so close to victory, felt um, like a real um, sucker punch. The way that Southampton equalised and the fact that it would have been third and totally in United's hands and, and comfortable. Now it's it's squeaky bum time, um, very much so, and um, United um, failed the first test of it with with that late equaliser. On the 95th minute, Gary Neville gave Anthony Martial man of the match and United were third. Come the 96th minute, United were fifth after a last-minute equaliser from Michael Obafemi. Was this a snatch and grab from Southampton or do you think United had a bit of a problem? Oh, it was horrible. I started recording the United We Stand podcast, which is sponsored by The Athletic, after 95 minutes just saying, this is the first time I've started recording during a game and we can do it because there's no crowd and it's nice and quiet and Southampton have got a corner. Oh, no, no, no. And it looked so good before then, not that it was the most convincing Manchester United performance, but rising into the top four properly for the first time since September, as high as third. And it felt like a defeat. And you know what, Carl? Laurie ignored me at the game last night. There was about 10 <laughs> people in the stadium. And I said hello to all of my journalistic colleagues, but not Laurie. I, I want you to pull him up on this, Carl. I was waiting for you to come up and say hi to me, Andy. I could see you were, you were with Simon Peach at, at PA. You're having a nice little chat with him. And I was, I was sort of, you know, buried in my laptop. And I was, I was waiting. And, and by the time I'd finished and got down, you'd, you'd gone, you'd scarpered. Well, do you want me to guess where you're sitting then? Just look round and scan everybody and then come up and see you. Yeah, okay. It probably was, it probably was on me, given I could, see, I could stare right into the back of your head to come and say hello. My apologies. I'll see you next no. time. All right, mate. We'll have a coffee next time. I've worked out a way. I've worked out a way of getting a coffee in the press room. You're not supposed to um, have any food, any drinks. Old Trafford, the security is fantastic. You get your temperature taken twice. The staff were magnificent, and I know it's it's a real privilege for for Laurie and I to, to be allowed inside the stadium because yeah. most of my mates would absolutely love to be there. Not that they're missing out on as much as they think they are. To be honest, it's a really weird experience. But I hope no one from Manchester United is listening to this. The coffee machine was left on, and while there were no cups about, I, I found a few um, plastic pint glasses and worked out a way to get a free cappuccino. <laughs> Thank you, Mr Woodward, Mr Glazer, Mr Solskjaer. We're going to start selling them before the next home game. You'll get an invoice in the post, Andy. Be careful. <laughs> Right then, before we begin, listeners, remember you can read all of Andy and Laurie's great articles on Manchester United for free for the next 30 days by simply going to athletic.com slash manunitedpod without paying a single penny. You'll also be able to listen to our entire podcast network over there, completely advertisement-free. That's theathletic.com slash manunitedpod. 
So, 2-2 draw against a team in Southampton that, while not necessarily the most talented, definitely work really hard and want to press teams. One point gained or three points lost, Laurie? Well, uh, I guess two points lost, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, I think... Um, I think the press did, you know, take. We, we knew that that's what they were going to come and do, but even then, I think it took. Well, it took me by surprise a little bit. The the real energy behind it. It was frenzied at times. It was it was um, you know real high paced stuff. And I suppose they did have uh, parts of the game where they they sort of took a bit more of a breather. But that first sort of twenty minutes, you know, United really struggled to, to get out. Obviously, that's where Southampton scored their first goal, and and then Pogba lost the ball again uh, to Shea Adams. And unfortunately for United, his pass to Ings was um, a little bit off, so they they escaped on that occasion but um, yeah in general it was it was Southampton definitely worth their draw I don't think anyone can take that away from them even though it was a late equaliser I think they they stuck about their task pretty diligently um, and they, they caused United real problems real considerations to make uh, I mean the piece that I've done uh, that's on the Athletic now um, is a reflection on the fact that United's possession was less than uh, 50% for the first time since lockdown's been lifted and that's against a team um, as I'm sure as you know that don't actually really want that much of the ball they, they prefer to have the, let the opposition have it and then they can press quickly high up the pitch and, and win it back in, in quick transition I and mean, obviously their goal was only two passes wasn't it with their with their, the way that Stuart Armstrong scored so um, so yeah it was it, that was disappointing also um, Paul Pog and Bruno's passing stats were down and there was that moment uh, I'm sure Andy heard it as well everyone everyone in the stadium heard it where Solskjaer screamed at Bruno um, so you know come on um, when he uh, misplaced over hit a pass to Marcus Rashford out on the wing when it was a really good attacking moment for United and, and Fernandes that's what he does bring to United quick uh, incisive action but I think perhaps against Hampton he was a little bit too rushed a little bit too um trying hard for want of a better phrase um, and maybe that is because of the way that Southampton pressed and, and the fact that he knew um, as you know, United's other midfielders did that they didn't have much time on the ball so um, let's get this moving quickly that being said some of United's play was sparkling you know the two goals that United scored were, were fantastic I thought Marshall and Rashford was was back to his best even though um, he, he did miss a, you know an opportunity although I'd, I'd rather give credit to Ryan Bertrand for the incredible last ditch um, time um, after that lovely move from Marshall and Rashford obviously Marshall had a couple of chances as well that he could have scored but he, he did make those chances for himself so I, I wouldn't be too critical on that account um, but yeah I think Southampton you know as I say they've beaten City you know recently so I don't think you should be dismissive of the fact that they could come to Old Trafford and, and play as they did um, I suppose it's just that element of United gradually as the match went on going deeper and, and sitting back and I know that United finished with 10 men the irony being Oriol Romeo probably should have been sent off for that um, well should have been sent off no probably about it in my opinion um, for that sort of studs on the ankle shin area of, of Greenwood way after the ball had gone but then United are the team that finished with 10 men and is that back post where Brandon Williams would have been um, quite possibly um, also Solskjaer came out and tried to get his team in a much more compact shape um, for that final part of the game, but they did seem to, to drift, drift deep too much. And, and that I think that the stats show that their possession uh, dropped dramatically after Pogba went and then Fernandes went off, even though they did have sort of below par games. So, yeah, I think it, it's, it's two points lost, isn't it? Because they, they were in a winning position. Um, they had chances. They um, were, you know, a minute away from... Um, confirming three points but that being said I, I don't think they can complain with, with the fact that they only picked up a point 
Andy, I want to get your thoughts here. This was United going unchanged for the fifth game in a row. This week, a number of Premier League teams will be playing three games in the next seven days. Did Southampton do a job or did United just seem a bit knackered? United did seem tired towards the end, but I thought Southampton were excellent right from the start. They were easily the better team in the first 15 minutes. The shape was spot on. The defensive structure was spot on. Manchester United didn't help themselves. Paul Pogba giving the ball away for the first goal. That was a mistake which was punished. And so Southampton deserve the praise that they are getting. They've been very good and had some excellent results, as Laurie said, uh, since uh, since the restart. Slightly concerning that United have conceded two goals in each of the last two home games. And yes, United should be beating a mid-table team like Southampton at home. It wasn't quite as frustrating as the game in Southampton in August, where United played very well in the first half, uh, went ahead and then failed to capitalise and put more chances away, allowed Southampton back into the game in the second half. And I feel United are in a much better place now in July than they were in August. Uh, Laurie mentioned uh, Oli Gunnar talking to Bruno. You can hear so much when there's so few people in the stadium and it echoes around. Uh, Harry Maguire's language would be described as industrial, which is quite appropriate given that Old Trafford is located in Trafford Park, the world's first industrial park and on a sort of less humorous note the the sound when there was a clash of heads with Brandon Williams I heard that and it was awful it really was that sickening thud and they, they both went down and I'm pleased that both of them don't seem to have um, serious injuries but Southampton they never gave up maybe Manchester United did sit back too much and they missed chances but Southampton had chances too didn't like the tackle from Oriol Romeo at all on Mason Greenwood. Uh, Romeo is a, a Catalan. I might be paying him a visit at home if he does that again. <laughs> I'm like, Greenwood, Greenwood's not a Spaniard, Romeo. What's your beef here, mate? <laughs> you know, he's just a young lad trying to play football. But it, it, he's a good player, but it was an awful tackle and he was very fortunate um, not to be uh, p- punished for that. And... I think Southampton, uh, they've had some very good performances against United. I've spoke to a few Southampton fans and they still bristle about the League Cup final a couple of years ago, which was a great mm. game where Southampton played really, really well. And Ryan Bertrand, who, who I thought was excellent at Old Trafford, uh, I seem to recall him being really good at Wembley. And that's just how football is sometimes. United have had enough results going the way of Solskjaer's team from the other teams. We had it a couple of weeks ago. Um, when Chelsea and Leicester both dropped points. And then we had it again at the weekend. And remember at the end of last season, there was this race for fourth where United and Chelsea couldn't win matches to get into fourth. And it was which one was going to be the worst of the two. And now United and Chelsea, they are winning most of the matches. It's Leicester who've been stumbling. I was worried about Wolves a couple of weeks ago, but there's a little bit of a gap there. It's still in Manchester United's hands, which it, it hasn't been for most of this season. I do think United will get into the top four, but got to go to Palace and beat Palace like Chelsea did. Got to beat West Ham at home uh, with David Moyes coming back to Old Trafford. And then there's that Leicester game. And I think looking at Leicester away, it sounds like a difficult one, but United's record against Leicester home and away is really good in recent years, even when Leicester have finished far higher up the table than 
Manchester United, even when Leicester uh, were, were champions. So I'm reasonably confident there, and Leicester are missing a couple of key players as well. It's good that United can continue to name that side. It's a winning side. It's a side that I like. It feels like a team. Uh, Laurie and I, it's our job to know what the feeling is inside that team, and I just hear nothing but positives. But when they're playing so many matches, and United have done more travelling than any other club since the lockdown, throw in as well the, the FA Cup matches. There's a, a tie at Norwich, and then they've got the semi final at Wembley. You wonder how much. Uh, drainage it's taking uh, out of the players. He's got a fit squad. Uh, Ollie's bringing on players. Uh, we brought on Fred to sort of steady up the midfield because Pogba didn't have his best game and Greenwood didn't have his best game, but you've got mm. to cut him some slack. Um, Rashford, as Laurie said, probably was his best game since the restart. Martial was the best player uh, on the pitch. Uh, the defence, I'm not entirely convinced. Uh, I, I would say that. Uh, Wan-Bissaka has been a, a good signing and Harry Maguire too but there are still moments in most matches where I wonder playing against Juventus or Real Madrid or Liverpool and I know United have beaten Manchester City and Chelsea and played well against Liverpool but I still think there's room for improvement there and I think Oli's got a pretty good idea of the players that he wants to bring in but I think it also means United have got to get some of the players off the wage bill uh, as well. But I have enjoyed watching the team since the comeback. I feel fortunate that there is a club there and a team there. Um, I'm a bit worried about the economy and the, the football, uh, having no fans in the stadium. That that does concern me because there's, there's uncertainty. We don't know when the league starts in September, whether fans are going to be come back and uh, it's a big, big miss. These are very strange times, but United have brought some joy, if I'm honest. I've, I've enjoyed watching a race for fourth, and that sounds sad. It sounds contrived, and what on earth are Manchester United doing racing for fourth? I get all that, but I've started paying attention to Wolves' results, to Leicester's results. started cheering when Sheffield United beat Chelsea, and that's what football can do to you, so I'm glad of that. I think United will get into the top four, but... That was a really, really frustrating 97th minute at Old Trafford last night. We've had a little update on injury reports. Laurie, please confirm if I've misconstrued how Ollie comes across in the press conference. But he says um, Luke Shaw's twisted his ankle and he's off for a scan, whereas Brandon Williams has a cut on his eye after that clash of heads. Do we have a time frame on when or if either of those players could return before the season's over? Yeah, it's. I suppose it's up in the air on, on both of them. Shaw sure tried to run it off, didn't he? So you, you hope that it's not as serious. It, it looked like Solskjaer in that in that instance took the decision out of, of Shaw's hand and, and said, "No, you're coming off. You know, you've had enough of a run." Um, so maybe he'll be okay. He's, I don't know. I thought Solskjaer sounded a sort of kind of positive on that one, but we'll see. And then with Williams, I suppose it's just. I don't think he had concussion. I think it was more the, the cut, and it was obviously bleeding quite heavily. And, and I suppose if it's an awkward position, you probably can't send him back out on the pitch if, if there's a risk of it opening up again. Um, so I suppose that does leave a dilemma at left back if, if they are, you know, it's, it's Thursday, isn't it? So it's only a couple of days um, from the recording of this podcast for the, for the next match. And um, is that enough time for, for both of them to be fit? Uh, we don't know. Um, Diogo Dolo wasn't on the bench last night, but he is training, he is fit. So somebody texted me last night saying maybe it's time for him to, to earn his recall, a sort of late, you know, burst into the team at the end of the season and, and do something there. Um, Ethan Laird is another one that's been training with the first 
team, uh, a young fullback who um, you know is, is very highly rated, a right back by trade. But I did a piece um, a couple of weeks ago and spoke to the under 23s manager Neil Wood, who said he used to play him as left back um, at various points in the sort of 15s and 16s. So he can definitely play that position um, fine if, if if needed. It might be a, a quite a big occasion for for him to be brought into, though. I suppose um, fresh out the gate. So um, yeah, I suppose it is a, an interesting one to, to look at, given that's been a position that's been pretty solid um, throughout the season with, with Shaw's sort of resurgence and, and Williams pushing him um, all of a sudden for it to be a, an area for debate is um, is awkward I, I guess and the final three games Palace away West Ham home Leicester away you've been through this a little bit quick yes or no are United going to finish in the top four yes just and it's really important that United play Champions League football next year and I know there's two ways of doing this, and there would have been three ways had Manchester City's ban been been upheld and United finish fifth. But I think it's really important that United are in that top competition next year, much as the Europa League has its virtues. If United do not get in the top four, got to win that Europa League, which will be tough. But I, I do think that there is more momentum with Manchester United. There's going to be setbacks. This isn't a complete team yet, not by some way. And Southampton were good, as we've as we've said uh, throughout. United have got to beat Palace away, got to beat West Ham at home, and if they don't, don't really deserve to be finishing in the top four. And the points total is still pretty feeble. It's still on to being the worst Premier League points total. That's how bad Manchester United were. How many times the team dropped points? United have drawn too many matches. There's a stat I found myself repeating over and over. Four wins out the first 12 games up to the start of December. And I told Oli Gunnar this, that just wasn't good enough. Nowhere near good enough. But the team uh, have been far more convincing since the end of January. 18 unbeaten and got themselves into a, a very good position. But there's no good being in that position if United still stay fifth like the team have been for, for, for most of the season. Got to get into that top four. And there can't really be any excuses because it's not like Leicester have been winning all the time. Leicester have been dropping points. So I do think, yeah, just about getting to the top four, it's going to the end. That makes it exciting. And then there's the Europa League, but that's a cup competition. One bad game and you can be out. And there's teams like Sevilla, who are excellent. They can beat Barcelona and Madrid. They can certainly beat Manchester United, as they did in the Champions League a couple of years ago. Hello, I'm James Richardson, host of the Totally Football Show, now part of the Athletics Podcast Network. We're going to be here following all the action as the 2020 football season reaches its belated conclusion. And if you're an Athletics subscriber, you can now hear exclusive ad-free versions of our show on the Athletic app. And don't worry, if you're not a subscriber, you can still listen to us for free with the occasional word from our sponsor by searching for The Totally Football Show on Apple, Spotify and all the usual podcast places. The Totally Football Show with me, James Richardson, still totally free and now totally ad-free on The Athletic. Right, let's get into some further business. What you two have been writing about on The Athletic and some other journalists too. Laurie, I want to go a bit more into what you've been writing about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in the last week. Earlier in the season, some people were describing Solskjaer as akin to a substitute teacher. Has he become a bit of a headmaster now? 
Well, that's it. That, that was uh, quite a few um, replies to me on, on Twitter, sort of not bad for a PE teacher, which was obviously the kind of a sort of stick that Solskjaer was, was being beaten with. And some other people did say also to me, well, listen, actually, he was saying things like this, you know, when times were bad or even last season or when he first got the job, you know, I think there was a, uh, a quote from him um, talking about how he'll be a success at United. Um, there'll be some players that, that won't be with him at that, at that point. So, you know, very clear. Uh, message to, to those that don't book up their ideas the, the point the, the kind of reason why I thought about writing this piece it had been something that had been creeping into my mind a little bit was just how he's appeared since um, football's returned um, sort of very relaxed certainly in his Zoom press conferences that we've been doing pre-match um, sort of cross-legged <laughs> at Carrington which I don't want to get all Sigmund Freud but it just sort of said to me someone who's comfortable in his position um, and, and then speaking to other people they were saying yeah he is more assured and I think he perhaps has taken note of um, that the, you know, the 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 power that you can have in those media briefings, you know, f- for your own players or for anybody else at the club to get messages across, and um, he seems to have you know made made that a conscious decision to project himself in, in that kind of way, and 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 just some of the some of the answers that he was given to questions, he could have deflected, and he could, and and, and times in the past, I think he probably has done um, from from recollection, it's it's perhaps you know whereas before maybe because he didn't have the results to back him up there was a certain hollowness maybe about those kind of emphatic statements whereas now because he's got the results and the performances when he's talking about the necessary needs um, for improvement there is a a much more much more conviction about it Um, you know so for example he was asked about you know the strikers uh, and because of the the form of Marshall Rashford and Greenwood does he he need a striker and he was you know he could easily have passed that off and said you know praise his own players but no he he, he was you know he made the point that when he was a player um, you had um, you had Dwight York, Teddy Sheringham, Van Nistelrooy, Rooney come in, and he had to keep fighting for his place. And that's that's the kind of culture that he wants to restore to Manchester United, where you've got that strength in depth. And I suppose that's one point from the game last night that maybe um, th- there could have been more options off the bench to retain the ball uh, t- with, with greater ease. Um, uh, admittedly, maybe he could have brought Igalo on for that for that hold up play, but um, I suppose you know decisions are, are, are sort of judged in hindsight a little bit more. Um, but that, that some of these answers just struck me as, as very you know powerful and impressive, and and that's kind of where I was coming from with the piece. And and I think even after last night's game, it was you know a, a, a pretty devastating um, goal to concede. I could imagine that he would have been pretty frustrated and and, and you know perhaps even a, bit, a little bit despondent. But the way that he came across, very calm, very measured, I can totally imagine that just transmitting through the players and being a a, a good way to react to, to a difficult situation and just sort of reassessing any any sort of strains in the mind that players might be under in that at that point. That's you don't you don't I don't think you need a manager sort of ranting and raving in that situation. He, he'll, he'll be calm and as I say measured. Uh, and I think what he was saying was was true. He was a fair representation of the game. He, he gave Southampton credit and um, he, he addressed where United perhaps um, fell short. So that's that's what my, my the point of my piece was. And I think also it was I think it is worth just shining a light on on Solskjaer. And as, as Andy says, there were some really desperate times earlier this season when. United were drawing, not picking up points, looking 
you know, dreadful creatively. Um, but Solskjaer has worked through that and I think he deserves credit for the fact that United do now look more like a team that we would associate with Manchester United than probably any point since Ferguson retired. I mean, I know we've United have had success with um, trophies under Mourinho and, and Van Gaal and Solskjaer's not won anything yet. You know, could even finish the season fifth and, and uh, you know, losing both cups alternatively could you know win one or two cups and finish in the top four and that would really be a great season when I know the points tally is low um, but a lot of people you know to me when I was speaking to them earlier in the season were saying the squad isn't good enough for for, for much higher than, than where they were at so um, that, that was kind of the, the, the thrust of the piece. <laughs> it's a good piece some people are crediting Bruno Fernandes's impact on United for the turnaround but I think we all know the real secret was Andy's interview with Solskjaer where he mentioned having a hole in his squad and having an arsehole. Mm, yeah, that's another <laughs> quote. That's, and Andy, you can talk about that, can't you? But that, that was another quote that stood out for me, that, that kind of punchy, um, you know, a, a nice line as well, you know, in a in, in second language. But, you know, that kind of forceful personality came through there. Yeah, I think it was very intentional what he did there. And he's feeling more confident and we can see that when we speak to him in the press conferences and you can speak to him off the record as well. And I've said several times on it, he's not the soft manager, the friendly face that sometimes comes across when he's dealing, uh, talking publicly. He tends to have a more optimistic um, outlook when he's talking, even after defeats. I think he handles pressure really well starting to look like a Manchester United manager to me. And just judging by A, his results, and B, the decisions that he's, he's made. And I asked him a couple of weeks ago in one of the press conferences about whether he had any regrets about the players he'd moved out um, last, last, before this season, and he said no. And he got rid of some big-name players there. And I felt at times this year there were a few more players he wanted to get rid of as well. But... He can't kill his players publicly. I think he's handled Paul Pogba's situation really well because clearly there were ups and downs there and he just continued to praise him publicly and I feel that's been vindicated now because you've had a player coming back. Okay, he wasn't brilliant against Southampton but he has been good since coming back and he's been a reason why Manchester United have been much better. So I backed Solly throughout and at times had a lot of criticism for doing so. Uh, I went to his hometown of Christian Sund in September and I, I sat there watching the sun go down over the beautiful harbour by the Atlantic and I put a picture saying I'm in Ollie's hometown, it's a beautiful sunset and the responses were overwhelmingly negative, especially when the piece came out with people saying things like that's a metaphor for his United management career, he'll be back there soon, he'll be back by Christmas and Part of me is tempted to retweet some of those replies. Should Manchester United win trophies um, this year? And it's been it's been a really interesting season to to write stuff for the Athletic and to do things like going to Christian Sund. And timing's really important. And the timing on that one was was not good at all because when the mood is down, uh, people tend to switch off. It's weird. And I gave an example recently of interviewing Matic preseason and saying that I'd done it and it was just like um, people just ignored it because he wasn't playing well. So the timing can be really important. But asking about stuff which I've been doing for The Athletic, I've been working on a, a lot of big pieces. I can probably 
talk about some rather than others because uh, well it's not until they're in the can but I've got some really good interviews lined up I've been working hard in Manchester speaking to people face to face because as a journalist you can interview people over the phone you can interview people using zoom or skype but there are times when it's much better to to see people face to face um so i've done a lot of stuff relating to to, to the current team and i've also done a piece on gary neville's time at valencia when he was there i was going to valencia all the time to see him and i couldn't write what i knew because i was too close to the story which can be frustrating as a journalist so i knew everything that was going on there and when Gary brought his team up to Barcelona for a, a semi-final of the Copa del Rey, a match which Valencia lost, uh, was it four, five, six, seven nil? Um, I would, I've got a good relationship with Gary and I would expect to go to the team hotel and have a coffee with him before the game, in, in the hours before the match, the dead hours for a manager, if you like, when his players are resting. And he just said, no, come, come and pick me up. Come and, and I felt that he wanted to be out of that environment and... We just sat on a street in the middle of Barcelona for four hours, him in his Valencia tracksuit. And, you know, he's Gary Neville. People know who he is. And people were walking past us and doing a double take, thinking, that's the manager of Valencia. And they're playing Barcelona tonight. And then he said, uh, can we walk to the ground, Andy? I said, well, well, we can do, but it's like four kilometers away. And, you know, you are the manager of the team and there's going to be 80,000 people there and you've got a Valencia tracksuit on. Can we walk to the game, Andy? Yeah, two right we can, Gary. Two right we can. I thought, I'm going to, going to protect him. I'm going to be his bodyguard. And it's a really interesting and very unusual um, way. And I saw a lot of that when I was in Valencia going to see Gary. And I found myself, because you know somebody, you really want them to do well. Because you know the suffering that they're going through. And I've had this a few times with people I know in football because you know how difficult it is for them. You know the pressure that they're under. One of them is a Manchester United fan. He's the current manager of Bristol City. Dean Holden, caretaker manager, Salfordian. This is a Manchester United podcast, so I'm allowed to mention him. And he took over last week and Bristol City fans were angry because the team had been losing matches. And Lee Johnson, who was very good with Dean, he lost his job and Dean didn't know what was coming next. And he's won every game since. So if this carries on, I'm going to suggest that that statue they ripped down in Bristol, that they replace it with one of Dean, because he's working a miracle there. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked, but as a journalist, you try and find interesting stories. Um, I've been speaking to some really interesting people um, relating to the sort of current Manchester United team, and hopefully that will be reflected in pieces in The Athletic. Big in-depth journalism it takes a lot of time to do, and it needs paying for, and... I'm glad that people like what we're doing for The Athletic. I want to talk to Laurie about one of these players that Solskjaer let go. James Horncastle, the Serie A Italian football expert, has written a piece on Alexis Sanchez, remember him, and how he's become Antonio Conte's restoration project at Inter Milan and whether or not a deal might be able to be struck in the three to four weeks in between seasons that might happen. Laurie, what do you know about Alexis Sanchez's future? Well, I think you've you've explained it there that... I- 
there's no way that he'll play for Manchester United again, even though he's got two years left on his contract. I just can't see a situation where Solskjaer brings him back into the fray. Um, there was a, a key moment, I think we discussed it before on the podcast, um, in training when Sanchez reacted badly to a, a tackle by Mason Greenwood in training and, and that kind of, you know, I think Solskjaer had already made his mind up because of the way that Solskjaer had been performing and kind of his mood around Carrington, but um, that, that made his mind up that, you know, this and my fu- the future of United is with Greenwood, not with Sanchez and, and you know, I think Solskjaer has been proven pretty accurate in that regard. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's obviously on a lot of money. Uh, I think he's uh, saving United, well, into his loan, uh, with United is, is you know saving them about ten million pounds a year in salary. Obviously, they're not paying the full uh, whack. Um, United are still picking up a decent chunk. I think about six million. So, it's it, it's an expensive problem to have for Manchester United, and they obviously would like to have some kind of resolution this summer. Whether or not that happens, I don't know. Given the way that the transfer market is looking with uh, coronavirus crisis and. I guess if they can do another loan with Inter, that would probably be okay for all parties, you know, because that would at least mean that wages are free to give to a potential signing, you know, if it's sort of 200 grand a week, which is, is kind of what we're talking about with Inter's contribution, um, then that could easily fund a, a very high quality player, uh, mentioning no names. So, um, yeah, that's how I see it with um, Sanchez. It sounds like Conte is interested in extending that loan. It sounds like Sanchez has perhaps got a little bit of his mojo back over in Italy and um, and, and the, the tax laws over in Italy uh, favourable to um, incoming um, residents is... You know, is why a lot of Premier League players are going over there because they can actually afford to, to pay them sort of you know decent salaries. Um, you know, as, as well. You know, we look at Ashley Young, um, Romelu Lukaku obviously has, has gone over there. So, um, so yeah, that's how I see things with, with Sanchez. Andy, I want to get your thoughts on another player who's also being linked to Serie A. Um, this comes from David Onstein, who wrote in his column on Monday about the future of Phil Jones, possibly not. Top three, maybe top four centre back at Manchester United right now, but there are some clubs capable of affording his wages, including some in Italy. What are your opinions of Phil Jones, and would you be sad if he left? I wouldn't say I'd be sad because I don't think he's ever remained uh, fit enough for long enough to become a mainstay of Manchester United's defence, and he's been at the club almost a decade. Uh, he's had some fantastic games and even seasons for United, but I think his time has been and gone. You mentioned Italy. He just needs to look at Chris Smalling. I went to see Chris in September for the Athletic and he was a rejuvenated character. He'd had a lot of abuse in England and the same can be said for, for Phil Jones. A lot of abuse off Manchester United fans and it did him so much good to go and play and live in a new country and find that actually I'm not a bad footballer. In fact, I'm one of the best defenders in a very good league. And the move to Roma for Chris has been really good, but it's also been good for Manchester United because he's gone from a player who the club would have um, probably loaned and seen the, the resale value drop to almost nothing to a player who somebody will pay significant money for. I'm not going to say 20 million now. I'm not going to say 30 million because... I can see that the transfer market and the economics of it have changed. But I do think that Chris, um, that, that Phil Jones is good enough to be playing top-level football. I'm not saying that Real Madrid or Barcelona are going to be going for him, but he's good enough to play in the Premier League. He's good enough to play um, in Serie A. Jose Mourinho used him all the time in the Premier League and 
Chelsea's not a bad judge of a footballer. And I'd say similar for Jesse Lingard. These players, they see their stock fall that much that it almost seems they're in a dead end at Old Trafford. I'd say the same for Johnny Evans. Johnny had one bad season, but that didn't make him a bad footballer. And he went to West Brom, he did well, and suddenly Manchester City and Arsenal were being linked with him. And he's had a successful career post-Manchester United. So I don't think it's always fair to completely write players off. And if you look at Jesse Lingard, his stock's probably lower than it's ever been among United fans. It'd probably do him, it would do him uh, a lot of good if he was playing every week at somewhere uh, where he can offer um, his skills. And he's still got good skills. It's only two years ago that he was playing in a World Cup semi-final. So there's several players like that. You just feel that the time has been. And Ollie said uh, last week, uh, he used a phrase where he said, players who've been legends here. He's been quite kind, but it's his job to decipher and decide whose moment has passed. And Sir Alex Ferguson often did that, often controversially. Fans didn't want to see Roy Keane go, or Mark Hughes, or Andre Konchelskis, or, or Paul Ince, but he made the tough decision. And I'm not saying it's, it's that tough to get rid of Phil Jones, but he does have to create space. He's got to decide whether... The time is now for Axel Tuanzebe. I know he's had a lot of injuries, but he's very highly rated. And if United can A, get a transfer fee for somebody like Phil Jones, because he does have a value, and B, uh, get the wages off um, Manchester United's balance sheet, which they need to do, because United have had the second highest wage bill in world football. And the team with the first, Barcelona, they've been really struggling with the finances. So United can't just keep adding and adding and adding. They've got to get rid of players. And something Laurie said then, £6 million, that's how much Alexis Sanchez is still costing Manchester United per year. It's a ridiculous amount of money. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame with Sanchez because his signing was welcomed, including by myself. Just didn't work out. Didn't work out. And it's, it's, it's a shame that it didn't work out, but that happens in football. More encouragingly, the signings which Oli Gunnar has made, including the loan signing of Bigelow, they have tended to work out. So that points in a more promising direction for Manchester United. But would it be sad if, if Jones went, if if Lingard went, if Sanchez went, if Marcus Rojo went, because he's earning an awful lot of money as well? No, I wouldn't. The team and squad has got to be refreshed. They've all had the chances. Some have taken them uh, better than others. And... Ollie's looked towards bringing young, predominantly British, but not exclusively British players through. And I think he should uh, continue to do that, to continue to improve it. Because if he doesn't, he'll be the one who loses his job. We're going to get into some reader questions and try and work out who might come in and who might leave. But I want to ask one final question on an athletic article we've got here. This one's from Michael Cox. It's part of his Reconsidered series where he goes back through classic games that people go, oh, do you remember that game? So-and-so ran it. This week's edition was Wayne Rooney's debut for Manchester United. Andy, I'm going to assume you were there. Yeah. (laughs) How good was Wayne Rooney on his debut? It was 9 or 10 out of 10. It was like, wow. Everybody knew that he was good because they'd seen him playing for Everton and scoring a wonderful goal. I think it was against Arsenal at Goodison Park. But he was still a teenager. And to come to Old Trafford and just go bang, bang, bang and score those goals and play so well, everybody thought, well, this lad's not going to need any settling in period. And it is difficult for for strikers. And it is difficult joining a club like United because they are far bigger 
than Everton, but he started with a bang and he, he, he never really stopped. He was incredible in those early years at Old Trafford. And I don't know whether Michael's analysed and taken apart that game, but in my memory and to my mind, it was a wow performance. It was one of his best in the first of, I think Wayne played 550 times for Manchester United. And if I had to say his top five performances, his very first one would be in there. There you have it. Wayne Rooney, real deal. Breeder, if you're interested in any of the articles we've just discussed there, you can head on to The Athletic and sign up for free for the next 30 days by going to theathletic.com slash Pod. Before we wrap up, we're going to get into some reader questions. Thank you, as ever, to everyone listening and getting your questions throughout the week. Remember, you can contact us on Twitter with your burning Manchester United questions. First thing comes from uh, Mr. Andy Howe on Twitter, Andy Howe 7 We simply asked, back when Manchester United were struggling, two things aimed at Oli were how they couldn't break down deep defences and how Oli couldn't know his best eleven. Now things are looking up. What do Manchester United need to do to solve those issues? Uh, Laurie, I want to throw this to you first. Well, I think Andy was saying that they those issues were sort of solved uh, in a way because um, you know, obviously they've played the same team five games in a row now and, and the deep defences are beginning to be picked apart when you've got Bruno and Pogba. I think he was sort of talking about um, clearly United are fifth still. Um, so what do they need to do to make that over the course of a season and actually get back to challenging uh, for the title? Clearly, you look at the points difference and it's a hell of a gap to make up to where Liverpool and Manchester City have put that points total at. I was looking back actually at some previous seasons when United had won the league and, you know, for instance, 96-97, they actually won the league with 75 points, which is, is crazy really to think of and how you know, last season Liverpool didn't win the league with 97. So um, it's going to be high 90s again for Liverpool this season. Can they maintain that? They've, they've looked a little bit uh, below their, their incredibly high standards since lockdowns was returned. So I don't know if, you know, maybe there's a little drop off in, in the points total, but clearly what United needs to do is win a lot more games as Andy said earlier they've drawn too many um, the, the losses that they've lost eight and you know United used to historically lose sort of five I suppose in a season and still win the league so that you know it's not perhaps too far off clearly the, the key to consistency is relationships on the pitch players improving on the training ground so that's what Solskjaer's mentioned at times previously that with time um, you know these players can actually improve within the team and, and the relationships and the understanding that they've got between each other and also in the transfer market you know let's let's not sort of kid ourselves they need to have improvements in the quality strength in depth so that's why they're looking at Jaden Sancho on the right wing and if we touch on Mason Greenwood who's been phenomenal since um, football's returned last night against Southampton was a quiet game it was like when he played against Manchester City uh, and was was kind of anonymous for on that right wing for for a large part and got subbed at half time you know he came off again against Southampton so that that's to be expected of an 18 year old kid he's going to have you know sort of down games so that's why you can't rely on you can't put all the emphasis on him to start every game right wing and produce what he's been producing because it's not feasible hence why you know you're looking at Jaden Sancho um, you know I, I, I thought that United could have also kept the ball more in, in the later parts of the game Jack Grealish some people you know doubt whether he's good enough for Manchester United personally I think he'd be an excellent addition uh, you know for that quality and depth and he does pick up the ball and, and run with it and keep it and, and win fouls so in that in situation last night I could see how he could have been a really useful uh, addition off the bench so listen there just a couple of my own thoughts um, yeah but I think basically you know, some good signings astutely made as Solskjaer's already done since he's been Manchester United manager and, and general improvement throughout the team and the players that are already there 
Andy, there's a question here from Lightning Surge, which asks how many times can Oli throw out the same 11 before they burn out? There seems to be this question of United's first team, the one with Bruno and Paul Pogba, Mason Greenwood and Martial and Rashford, is good and there's Champions League quality. There's also this worry from Manchester United fans that the second unit, the one of Fred and Scott McTominay, who were fantastic before Project Restart, perhaps are closer to Europa League quality. Can Ole Gunnar Solskjaer show himself to be the sort of rotating master that Alex Ferguson was? He's going to have to be, and the current circumstances are exceptional. So if you look at the league, which is going to finish end of July, there could be an FA Cup final 1st of August, then you've got 10 days. There could be there's a Europa League. I mean, last might win 6-0 at Old Trafford, so Manchester United might not be going to Germany, but that could carry on until August the 20th, the 21st. And there's talk of the Community Shield being on the final day of August. And it's got to be really cleverly planned how these players are rested because it's a year since this season started and they have had a huge rest, which has been very beneficial. And I take the point that some of the players might not seem to be good enough. But then Jose Mourinho picked out the strength of Manchester United's bench before the game at Tottenham, the first game back after the restart. I've seen Fred be man in a match against Manchester City away in the league. I do think he's, he's a good player. I don't think the issues with Fred or, or with Matic, I know he's in the first 11, if you like. I think it's more with trimming down and moving on the players who I mentioned in the previous question and strengthening again. Uh, bringing in Sancho I think would be a great addition because as Laurie said um, Greenwood's still fantastic but he isn't as consistent as he's likely to be when he's 23-24 that Manchester City game in the cup in January that made up Ole Gunnar's mind where he thought I need another striker in which led to Igolo coming in but I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic I think it's it is coming together it's just going to take time and there's that huge gap to Liverpool and Liverpool you know they're the deserved champions that they're, they're the European champions, at least for now. They're the world champions. United have got to beat Liverpool. It's not about holding them to a draw at Old Trafford. And I'm not saying United will finish ahead of Liverpool next season, but United have beaten City. United have, have beaten Chelsea several times, home and away. They've got to beat Liverpool. Got to go to Anfield or at Old Trafford, beat Liverpool, score a winning goal in front of the cop, jump into the home and... Whoever scores it, run up the steps, shouting 20 times, 20 times. Just stick one on Liverpool to make them think, we are not what? Am I getting carried away here, producer? <laughs> or am I just dreaming? Because <laughs> I've seen it almost happen before when John O'Shea scored at the, uh, the, uh, in 2007. But no, I, I do think United were very good against Liverpool in October and were five minutes away from beating Liverpool. Liverpool and Manchester United's biggest rivals that are two biggest clubs in English football by a mile, United have got to stick it on them, like they used to do in the 80s, and that's got to come next season, and that will be a, a further sign of progress that will wipe the little smirk off their faces, and that needs to things like that need to happen next season. It isn't just going to be about one game, but Ollie's done lots of good things this year, beaten lots of good teams, but Liverpool's where it's at. Let's, let's beat Liverpool and then put a decent title challenge in. Not saying United are going to win it, but there hasn't been a single genuine title challenge since 2013. And that is a failure, given the strength of the squad and the expenditure on the squad. We've got one final question left, but Andy, I want to say thank you for keeping on mentioning the fact that Laska's still in this Europa League tie. 
Um, this question comes from Matty, MJB Jonesy on Twitter, and this one's for Laurie. Uh, says he loves the podcast and just wants to know, Laurie, you mentioned about how United kind of struggle to put in more than three transfers in a summer window. Um, and Matt wants to know, what, why is it that Manchester United rarely buy more than three players in one window? I suppose it is difficult when you're shopping in the market that United are to, to bring in um, the kind of quality that they would like to bring in. Um, that being said, I do think uh, the processes at United can be slicker. Um, I think there could be more proactivity. I think there's a certain desire to try and negotiate deals uh, within an inch of their lives so that um, you know United you know, can... can announced the fact that they've got a, a better deal than what was on the table to begin with but that uh, comes at the cost of the time it takes and the fact that you know United could be playing matches during this time or, or having a pre-season where players could be getting you know new players could be getting acclimatised um, so that is that is a frustration um, yeah I think it, it, listen, if they sign three players this window I think you'd have to say that's good because um, that's probably about the number they, they would need to as we discussed in the last question you know get up to the levels that they need to challenge for the, the title and um, it's a difficult market clearly with the way that um, the situation is with coronavirus crisis so yeah we don't know exactly what's going to happen there but um, I think the, the reason why they, they, they take you know a, a sort of they find it difficult to to sign more than three players is because um, yeah, I guess they have uh, agents adding zeros onto to demand or clubs adding zeros onto demand when United are in, in town in, in the market for their player and United want to try and uh, resist that as much as they can so it, it takes time but um, I think there probably comes a point with certain transfers where you know United should just appreciate that it's uh, going to cost them a bit of money and, and put the money down quickly, decisively um, and then you can get the player in the door so um, we'll see, they're, they're, they're my thoughts on it though Andy, should United just get the briefcases out or is does it pay to be diligent in the transfer market? Of course it plays to be diligent and I think Oli Gunnar is diligent and he puts in lots of background checks. I said last week um, the research he was doing into to a player in Uruguay he did it last year with Aaron Wambasaka. I don't think there's a problem there because he knows it's, it's, it's his neck on the line and if you're spending tens of millions of pounds on a player, that's that's a huge amount of money. And United have failed more often than succeeded with the transfers um, post post Ferguson and even under Ferguson. You know, <laughs> Sir Alex didn't always get it right. Far 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 from it. I do think there will be maybe more of financial uh, stringency because of what's going on. I was at the game last night. There's no fans there. The, the club's revenue stream has been impacted massively. There's no people in the in the mega store. There's no people buying um, buying food, buying match tickets. Uh, they have to be refunded. And United might be in a better position than most. But when I see people saying a hundred million will be spent for Jaden Sancho, I'm just extremely doubtful of that uh, because. I don't think there would be those type of figures in the European transfer window uh, this summer. I think uh, a couple of additions would be good, combined with uh, a couple of players with huge wage bills being moved on. I think those two things have got to happen. And I'd spoke to Ollie after the Derby game, and he said that he needed two or three players to make United into a team which genuinely challenges for titles. And he said it again last week. It, winning and being in the Europa League or pushing for the FA Cup is not the same as 
winning the, the Premier League and going for the, the Champions League. And that's where Manchester United should be. They're one of the three biggest teams in the world. And the Europa League, okay, now and again. But United have been in that competition uh, far too much this decade. And it's all right for weirdo groundhoppers like myself who like going to Kazakhstan, but it's not necessarily good for the health of, of the football club, which needs Champions League football. It does need Champions League football. And with three games left, it remains to be seen if matches that will be in the competition, at least in domestic terms. Um, I think that's everything from Talk of Devils this week. I want to say thank you very much to Laurie. Cheers, Carl. Cheers, Andy. And thank you very much to Andy. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Laurie. I remember, reader, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a free 30-day trial by heading to theathletic.com slash Pod. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talk of the Devils. That's a Manchester United podcast brought to you by The Athletic. We'll be back next week. Thank you.